I'm Yasi Salek, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. This episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If saving money was on your 2024 resolution list, I have a 100% guaranteed way to make sure you follow through. Ready? Just switch to Mint Mobile. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com watch. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, leaving through the Schmerta exit, it's Andy Greenwald! I like that one. Just that don't good. look back. They can't see you, man. What's up? I'm excited for today's podcast. It's like a light, a light potpourri. Which spice blender we're going to be working with? I don't know. It's just good to see you. We have a bunch of interviews coming up, so we wanted to kind of like hit a few shows today, Andy. It's wonderful to get to hang out with you on this Monday. You know, typically speaking, I think we hit House of the Dragon. We get up in the chambers and we talk about succession plans and we talk about dragon mm. ownership and we talk about knife fights at funerals and whatnot. And uh, we are going to do that today, but on the second half of the show for the most part because we wanted to hit the Black Panther trailer. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about this latest episode of Atlanta from last week. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's okay to say that you want to give, should we just give Abbott Elementary the belt? That's kind of the, that's another thing I want to do. I don't know if we're going to, if you want to start with that, because I know there's some, there's a couple other small things from our lives that I wanted to hit, but we can do it. We can do it. We should just say it. Like, guys, I, I was watching the second episode. Do, typically sitcoms mm-hmm. don't get belts. You know what I mean? We yeah. give we give them we we give them tons of praise. Well, we enjoy the hell out of them. Typically, we don't give the belt. I mean, typically, we sure. forget about this bit for eight to ten months. Then succession comes back, and we're like, everyone, some news. I think that we've done it a couple of times. I mean, Kaya can correct our math because she is sort of like the uh, she's really not only the producer of this podcast, but she's also the the sort of she's its conscience, really. Yeah, exactly. And I think Kaya would remember how many times we've given the belt over the last three years, just if you asked her. <laughs> I think Kaya holds the belt when we don't give it out, and it's been on the wall of her apartment so long that I just that's think right. She and then like different people from different TV shows go to Kaya's apartment, and Kate mm-hmm. Winslet's like, "Can I have the belt?" And she's like, "No, not yet. They haven't given make it Kate, out." Make Kate Winslet talk more. Um, Do the rest of the podcast as Kate Winslet. I just want to say, I was watching the second episode of the second season of Abbott Elementary, and Chris, you're right. It's not just that we don't often give. Uh, luxury fashion items out to sitcoms or broadcast TV shows in general. Um, we don't. I, that's what I meant to say. We don't give it to broadcast shows usually, if ever. 
But I was watching the second episode of the second season, and I was like, this has it. This show is the total package. This show makes me feel so elated and so happy. And for me, it hits that sweet spot in the Venn diagram of an absolutely brilliantly conceived and executed show operating at a very high level, but also you know, we love to cover the industry element of it a little bit too. And the sort of the meta story behind the story and like the way that this show is both advancing, iterating, if you will, shout out my tech bros on Elon Musk's uh, chain. Oh yeah. Uh, which I do want to talk about too. Um, Wait, do you actually, format, let's, let's I hit everything. Do, let's hit everything. But, yeah. But Liz trusts U-turn pod. Let's go. You had her ear. You were like, Liz, listen, Kate <laughs> Winslet not, here on the line. It's not too late. It's not about cutting taxes. It's not going to work for you. It's just that Abbott Elementary is so tapped into what has made our favorite comedies great and is building on that foundation in such a cool, respectful, but also generative way. Like, it's a different generation of show. And the jokes, man, the ensemble, the like the sense of who these people are in the f- imagined fictional space of this world, who they are to each other. Barbara thinking that uh, different white actors are actually black. It's just a classic runner of a, of a single cam sitcom of the century. And it's so rewarding because you not only get the joy of the jokes and you can imagine the writer's room coming up with each one. Um, Michelle Williams of Destiny's Child or Michelle Williams of Dawson's Creek. But it's not mean-spirited. And the cutaways to our other characters reacting, taking it in, Jeffrey not knowing about the bit, everyone else so excited for the bit, it makes you feel a part of the community in the best way. And for people who haven't watched the second episode yet, one of my favorite tropes of sitcoms, not just of this century, of any century, is the inexplicable rival. So Eagleton on Parks and Recreation. That's right. Gary's Old Town Tavern on Cheers. Now we have a rival school just up the block that's gone charter that Addison. has colored paint yeah. that has, what did you say? These ceilings are so smooth. Isn't that what floors are for? So good. And it has the great Lauren Weedman, hopefully of many appearances to come, as uh, the sister, yeah. frenemy sister. Of, sister. Of, uh, uh, oh my God, what's the character's name? Of my favorite show that I'm Melissa. raving about. Melissa, thank you. It's just, it's just a really, really good show, guys. Yeah, I'll just add. I, you know, you're right. The, the I think you, like you said, the Gary's Old Town Tavern trope is great. Um, they just are doing a really good job in the second season of also calibrating, recalibrating the characters in just slight, slight ways. Mm-hmm. Janine is like five percent less uh, kind of Pollyanna-ish, and Gregory is like five percent more weird. Mm-hmm. And and is like now that he has like taken this job full <laughs> on is now like I'm a bit of an odd guy, especially about food. And even Ava, who is obviously like this huge comic relief character throughout. I mean, is a comedy, so you don't really need a comic relief character. But Ava is they've even made her like three percent more believable as a boss that wouldn't yes. get fired like the first day. And she comes through at the end with the water ice in this episode. I just thought, yeah, I mean, it's just a delight every week. It's it's. I think it's sometimes is easy to dismiss network comedies and sitcoms as uh, as disposable or whatever. But like, I just I just find this show to be a delight every week and just um, and just like a knockout. And and I don't want to ding. I mean, we talked about reboot last week a little bit, and I don't want to ding it because Abbott doesn't need other doesn't need to, you don't need to put down other people to make this show 
even better but, or to make it look better. But it is just interesting, like the way different ways people try to uh, update, address, fix, iterate, I'll say for the third time, just because I'm really trying to get this, this seed money from Elon. It's not that complicated sometimes. You just have to be really focused and really good at what you're doing. You know what I mean? And, and, and the thing about Reboot that I think I bumped on, and even though I'm, I am going to stick with it because you said it, you know, you, you gave me some faith, that just really feels top down. You know, here's some big stars being airlifted into a concept where Abbott just feels so organic. It just feels so organic the way it has flowed from Quinta and her ideas and the type of show she wants to make and the messages she wants to put out into the world. And it just feels great. I do have a question for you, though. Yeah. If you, if everybody was wearing like Jared Goff jerseys in this show <laughs> and they were this eating is a great question. Detroit style pizza yeah, and all the jokes were Detroit jokes, do you think you would love it as much? Now, you guys listening, I mean, Chris is, Chris is getting deep in the math, right? He's like 3% better, 5%. I, I respect that. I respect that. Um, do I love this show 5 to 10% more? Because, because it's, it's Philadelphia. Because Melissa has to go to court because she threw a corn cob at Ben Simmons? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But Detroit's a great place too. I really like Detroit. And Detroit has some weird specific shit that is deserving. When's the last time you've been to sitcom. Detroit? When was the last from... time I was in Detroit? Yeah. Uh, great question. Uh, 15 years ago? Has it changed? Yeah, it may have. Who knows? I, I've never been, actually. Had I had lived, nothing but I great times in Detroit. Detroit, I live vicariously through the fiction of Elmore Leonard. Oh, well, then you've been there recently. <laughs> um, other thing that is the best, Chris, and I do want to ask you, I, I assume you referenced it or you got the reference. So Elon Musk's uh, text. Yeah. Incredible stuff. As part of his just, you know, no notes attempt to take over Twitter and then to not take it over. I guess the Delaware Court of Chancery, which is a place I would like to either set a sitcom or find myself in one day because it does feel like the, that the definitely night. feels like if they had made a like a sequel to Michael Clayton, we would have had some Delaware Court of Chancery action going on there. Yeah, or it's a Dickens Dickens as adapted by Charlie Kaufman, but these texts were made public in public record, and they're incredible. Because these guys are all just dipshits, I guess. And I love that. So my question for you, though, and it's referenced, it, it's related to the Liz Truss thing, which is also just seems to be going great. She's the prime minister of the United Kingdom, yeah. Do you think when Jesse Armstrong sees stuff like this, is he just like more grist for the mill? Or do you think he's like, now people w- will believe me? Do you know what I mean? This This touches on what we were saying last week about succession because we referenced that moment when you know, people in the political press in America were like, aha, House of Cards has finally gotten yeah. our gladiatorial combat correctly. But it was really- actually Veep was yes. the more accurate depiction. So you want to know whether, like, the this sort of, like, public faceplant that's going on in England is, is like, reflective of the kind of way, the way that Jesse Armstrong views power in the first place? Well, I, I guess I'm just, I, I find it continually fascinating that when people... And maybe the peg to succession is a little much, but like when there's some criticism of something like succession or Veep, I think it comes from these people aren't likable and it's a little too broad or cartoony. And then real life just seems to continue to match up more with what that generation of British satirists think life actually is like than our perceived self-serving version of reality. I mean, these, these Twitter things where it's just like, billionaire tech bros being like, yeah, I'll I'll go half a yard if you make it so that in order to tweet, you have to pay for it in Dogecoin. 
and they're like, sick idea, bro. Yeah. Like, that's really what's happening right now? Well, I do wonder whether or not, especially for The Thick of It, which was the show that Jesse worked on with uh, Armando Iannucci's show before uh, Veep and, you know, like that, this sort of depiction of basically that middle management band of British politics for a long time. Like, it's always been this way, but there's just more... Uh, documentary evidence of it now because of social media and just because I think now that politicians try to like they can't leave they can't not be a master of the universe and everything they do so they're like no I'm going to be really good at tweeting now you know or I'm going to be really good at like you know interacting with like leaders of major businesses that they just wind up on front street a lot more so like Liz Trust doing what she did which for people who don't know is basically she presented a mini budget, like her initial mm. budget, that she's been in office for like eight minutes, right? And in the mean, and since she's gotten into office, like the queen has died, the pound has crashed. She's basically said that there, she's going to like let bankers make as much money as possible while like defunding services for regular English people. And then is like, you know, at, facing essentially one of the great recessions of the uh, the recent history for England was like, my bad, like, let's U-turn that. After spending three do- days being like, stay the course, English people have backbone. That is basically the plot of a season of, of the thick of it. But I don't think anybody really enjoys it when it's happening in real life. I think that's a great point. I think that's the, probably the most important point. Well, it's easy to laugh at it. But if you it's know a TV what? This is actually like a good way or... of talking about what I wanted to talk about today because mm. we were going to chat a little bit about Dragon and, and and to some extent rings like as a side thing. But you know, you were we were talking a little bit before we started podcasting about whether or not shows like House of the Dragon or the House of the Dragon specifically had made a pivot to high fantasy in a way that was a real. Uh, deviation from what Game of Thrones used to be in the culture and how Game of Thrones is sort of like strangely, I don't know if it was welcoming, but there were basically two ways of watching Game of Thrones as a casual who was just like, I know the names of the players. I kind of see what's happening. And then you could actually take graduate studies in this by reading Concepcion when he was writing Ask the Maester or listening to Binge Mode and really, really, really throwing yourself into it as a text. And... It's funny how like these shows and the preponderance of IP that we have have essentially filled the vacuum of shows that would be about quote unquote real life right now. Like we don't yeah. actually have that many shows that we talk about at least. Like there's Atlanta, there's Abbott, there's a few reservation dogs that are just sort of like, oh yeah, this is like American life happening right in front of us. You know, let's let's talk about modern modern American life. And then the more of the attention is paid to stuff like House of the Dragon, Rings of Power, the Marvel shows, Andor, as we're talking about, and almost throwing yourself into a completely like fashion, a reality fashioned out of whole cloth, you know, like a world that is enveloping in, in a way. And I wonder whether or not sometimes, I, I, this is a pretty, this is a pretty tenuous connection, but do you feel like shit is so bad outside the walls that people like create terrariums of, of mythology to enjoy inside. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, well, I think it's a valid question. And I think I want to tread lightly because all of us who care about culture do that. We all have oh, our yeah. little yeah. back to tanks 
which is a term I definitely knew before the last year of Star Wars content, where if we are overstressed or we're unhappy or the world is too much, we can just find solace in. And, you know, you mentioned Elmore Leonard's Detroit novels. That's a good one for us. And I'm sure there are records that we come back to or movies as well. I don't begrudge that in anyone. And everybody should, you know, take find whatever piece they can in the it's been a little bit tough Western for me recently, though, because yeah. of uh, the the situation with Russia. It's like it's not as easy for me to to dive into Cold War fiction. <laughs> Doesn't feel as much of an escape anymore as it <laughs> yeah. did for the twenty five years that you were really getting into it. Um, I think, on an individual level, that makes total sense. But we don't, other than our own personal taste. I mean, we generally cover these things as part of the larger continuum of cultural and political and just real life. Yeah. And I have less less optimistic or sweet-natured takes when you consider these shows as the you know the 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 unfurled banners of giant multinational corporations and their larger profit enhancing goals. Which is to say, I think that having these major properties retreat further and further from anything that might offend anyone real is probably smart business for these companies, but I find it extremely disheartening. You know, like as they disappear um, up their own, I don't even... I try to be more generous about the situation. I think for one thing, the fact that Dragon and Thrones are on at the same time has not done either show favors. So... 100% agree. I think not only are... Both shows obviously pretty dense, relatively long compared to like the patient, I guess. You know, so you have, you're essentially dedicating two plus hours per week, plus honestly, some supplementary reading if you want to understand what's going on all the time to these two worlds that are only going to keep expanding, only going to keep getting more Mm -hmm. dense. So, I don't think that it's really like helpful if on Sunday, on Friday, you have a new Rings of Power and on Sunday you have House of the Dragon. Obviously, some people can keep those two shows in their brain or they save them and they watch them. I mean, like I've actually found it a little bit more helpful to have a couple of Rings of Power to watch rather than watching it once Mm -hmm. per week. I don't think that that would necessarily be the case with House of the Dragon, which almost seems to be leaning into the week to week nature of its airing by having these time jumps. I don't think time jumps would actually work at all in any kind of like, oh, I've I've got three episodes of House of the Dragon and then by the third episode, the cast has changed twice. And I was looking at the scenes for next week on House of the Dragon and the kids are all grown up. Like, they're new kids. Like, Ty Tennant is gone. Like, the kid who's playing Aegon. Like, it's, it's like they are still moving through time at a really fast clip on this show. Um, well, what shouts to them though, because they're using the same technique I used to use when my friends and I would put on, like when we were like five or six years old and put on shows for our parents, which is you just turn off one light and then right. you run away and put the pillows in a different place and then you turn the light back on, which is what they did this week. And I was impressed by that. Please did you, were, was this original material you were doing or was it like, were, were you a rep theater kind of going through the works of Chekhov or what was? What thank was you for th- asking that. I think if I remember correctly, and if any of the, f- the photographic evidence, which thank God there isn't a ton, it was really a lot of sort of freeform improvisatory, like discovering the space. Oh yeah. Mainly based on jumping from couch pillow to couch pillow. That's at least how I best remember it. Occasionally playing my mom's vinyl copy of Meet the Beatles. This is like circa age three to four, I think, which is uh-huh. really some of my most free work in terms of my 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 body, you know. And what kind of audience um, did you did you draw for this? 
Uh, well, you know, as an only child, I would say that a we were drawing from yeah. a pretty small pool. And, you know, did we perform this in the same room where my dad was already like smoking a pipe and listening to the Cardinals game on KMOX, the station that we did not receive in Philadelphia? Yeah. But let me paint you a deeper picture. Anyway, I, 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 I agree with what you're saying. And I think that it's important to separate these two, even though the context is not our friend here because they're on at the same time. I continue to think that Rings of Power is a more successful show, even though I'm here to also announce I don't think I'll be continuing on that journey either. Uh But it strikes me as a more successful show because it is just entirely devoted to map building within the aesthetic framework of Tolkien, right? Like, I, it's definitely not, at least in terms of the episodes I've seen— advancing much particularly. And and this is taking aside the conversation that I wish we didn't have to have about who's in these shows and representation because I think they've done actually a really nice job with that. And I think the actress who plays Galadriel is awesome. Like they did a really good job in the, in the, you know, in the main, but it's just doing what it's doing. It's just giving people rings and hobbits that aren't called hobbits and it's delivering on that. And I don't think it seems, I don't, it doesn't strike me that it has much interest in, converting me, someone who really likes industry and reservation dogs, into watching it, if that's not my vibe. And okay, I respect that. I think the burden of Dragon, which I think is fails on a lot of just simpler, this is how we ought to be making television week-to-week tests, but I do think that it's struggling particularly because Game of Thrones was a show that people who didn't necessarily care about Dragons liked. And Would they liked you... it for very compelling narrative reasons, and this show is not attempting that. In any way. And I, and I wonder if we ever spoke to Ryan Condal or anyone. I don't know if they would argue they were. I mean, how could they be when every week we introduce a whole bunch of people, many of them children, who have some stuff happen to them in a performative way in the round, and then we move on to different characters or different actors the next week? Would you have preferred it if this show had been called The Burden of the Dragon and it was about a dragon having a lot of anxiety issues about who was going to ride him going forward? Chris, you joke, but a note that I definitely took in this episode, other than, I'm sorry, do I need new lights in my house? Have I finally gone blind? Will Chris's eye doctor call me back after I explain my experience watching the show primarily in pitch blackness? Was, it's called House of the Dragon. This family, who is just awful, seem to have power because they have the cheat code, the nuclear codes, right? Yeah. They have dragons. They have an Air Force, yeah. Tell me more about the dragons then. Like, I know they're expensive, but like the fact that they all speak Latin you should seems Dr. interesting Thrones to me. Because Mal will tell you about the dragons. Mal will give you like the whole breakdown of Vagar. I, I am and- so lucky to be friends with Mallory and have access to Mallory Plus where I could get that information, right? I right. subscribe. No ads. Maybe the people making the TV show might want to look into that. You know what I mean? Like, the show is so confident in our just endless appetite for everything in this world that I think it miscalculated, miscalibrated what noobs or regs, basics, whatever you want to call us, might be interested in. You know, what's on the screen. I am going to ask you this. Yeah. If there was a 10 minute scene in House of the Dragon that was all about the personality quirks of the various dragons, wouldn't you be like, come on? No, no. So thank you for asking that to be clear. I don't, I don't care about these dragons at all. Okay. But the dragon trainers or like the day-to-day of having them and how you use them and what any of that means, how long they've had them, that would be fine. 
that would be time better spent to me than introducing people briefly only to have them burned in a fire pit, you know, or like having nine child actors that I have no relationship to and don't care about get in a fight. The show is so in a hurry to show us something that it hasn't shown us yet that I think it assumes we're going to find interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to belabor this show for the entire season, for instance. No, you're baiting me into it with no, your I'm neurotic not try- dragon I'm, I'm really take, not trying I, to. I, that wasn't what... See, I, so I obviously... I'm, I host Talk the Thrones. I talk about it every week with Mallory and Joanna. I think I enjoy this show a lot more than you, obviously. Part of that is because when you study something... Like, yeah. if you're actually watching something and you're like, for every scene, I'm taking a note. For every performance, I'm having an evaluation. For every moment, I'm kind of thinking about how it fits in with the moment before and after. Like, there is a way to watch a television show that I would argue you can apply to almost any show and start to see it in a different way than you would if you're just like, I have 45 minutes to an hour and a half. I'm watching something. Did this thing pass the litmus test of was I entertained or not? You know, and... There are various levels of entertainment. You can watch something like, um, you can watch Top Chef and kind of have one eye on the screen and one eye on your phone and then like focus in on the challenges and the judgment and then, you know, phase in and out when they're having like personal conversations with the chefs. But you can understand Top Chef or you can watch every single frame of Top Chef and think deeply about the knife skills of every person on there. Like you can have a different relationship to shows. So this isn't, this isn't news. I think because I'm watching it in a really close read way, even though it's in no way near like as deeply and as like thoughtfully as Joanna and Mallory are, I have a different appreciation for the show. I I think that like I find that there are scenes in vacuums, especially that are, for instance, in this past episode, uh, Driftmark, I thought that there were moments that were the best of the series so far. Mm -hmm. I thought that the moment that uh, Emma Darcy and Matt Smith are walking on the beach in total blackness and impossible to tell what's going on for sure. <laughs> Incredible choice. But, and I don't know how that happened yeah. or why that happened or if they're like, no, it's like Gordon Willis shooting in the 1970s. You don't need any light. It's like Michael Corleone and Tao. Let's, let's um, go with that. Yes. Okay. I thought that that was a wonderful scene. I thought it was a great moment where she's explaining like, you know, as twisted and fucked up as it was to have an uncle take a niece to a brothel for her first sexual experience and then abandon her there that everything that had happened to her since that night had essentially been a disaster and that she somewhat latently blamed him, but also never blew out the candle for him. And as we saw, they they sparked that candle. Uh, I, I, I wish they'd sparked it on set that day so we could have seen what was that's happening. That's right. I wish they'd sparked on. some lights, yes. I, I enjoyed that scene. I thought, actually, that the knife fight scene, the Olivia Cook Emma Darcy showdown, the Allison Rainier showdown, where she's just like, now they see you for what, for what you really are. And Allison kind of being like all of a sudden, like I had had control of this situation and now everybody's looking at me like I'm a lunatic. I thought that was a really cool scene. So I do think that there's stuff to like in this show. I, I think that if, had I known this is what it would be, would have been. Mm-hmm. I honestly do think I probably would have suggested that they, I mean, not that they would have taken my suggestion, but my preference probably would have been for it to be a lot slower. Because I think it would have solved some of the issues that you have while being far less dramatic. The sort of quote-unquote history that this show is covering, the, the, the episodes leading up to these last two have been essentially preamble, but I do agree with you. It's like you're like, oh, these child actors that I don't care about or this thing that I don't know about. Yeah. It's like I think that they probably could have developed different relationships with those people had they done 
had they spent more time with them in those opening episodes. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, I, when I've been critical of the show, I, the one frustrating thing is I think it's been misunderstood. I'm not saying I don't understand what's happening. It's very, very clear what's happening. I understand who these people are and whose children they are broadly. Um, I'm saying I don't care, which is, and I should rephrase that. That's that's like a, a harsh way of saying it. I don't feel like we've been given enough story to become engaged in, to become emotionally connected to any of them with, you know, and I find that that to be a bummer. You know, I a character like Corliss, who seems cool and interesting, even though I kind of disagree about their burial techniques, where it's just right. like, let's put this person in a stone coffin and drop them in the local swimming hole. Like, do they know what happened? Like, she's just going to be there now. That doesn't feel that epic to me. Like, maybe put them out to sea a little bit more. Like, maybe a sense of adventure. But Well, I guess that way you can always be close by. Because they're just like, where's where's Lena? And she's like, well, she's right there by the dock. It, it's very sweet. It's just <laughs> literally right there where we go fishing. Um, I, I think that a character like Corliss, who seems interesting and had grievance in the present moment when the show began, we've now traversed 10 years. I guess we're going to do another 10 years at some point. And my takeaway is that his life is boring and sad, which maybe is a point. But all these people are still talking about something that was prologue of the series. You should have had that crown on your head, wife. Okay. Well, what do you do on Tuesday? What did are you, you going like, to do next did week? Did you like her response, though, where she's like, that's your dream? Like, I gave yes. that up the second that they didn't get it. You're the one who's been hanging on to this for, for years. Yes. And that's kind of the way I feel about the Andy Greenwald podcast. You know, and it's a conversation that we've had multiple times where I was like, Chris, that podcast was my legacy. Right. And you were like, that was your dream. That was your dream. Yes, everyone involved with the show continues to do top tier work in a circumstance that I just feel is 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 allied against, is, is just set up against them in terms of compelling, stakes-driven narrative storytelling. And I find it very frustrating. Um, but that said, the bigger point I did want to get to is what do you think? Now, this is not you, Chris Ryan, industry fixer, or talk the Thrones host, but just, mm-hmm. but just, just you as a as a average as a viewer. Joe. Yeah. What do you think are the benefits of these larger fantasy shows? Kind of pulling up stakes and drawing the curtains and being like, "We're about what we're about for the people." who are really motivated by this. I don't want to wiggle. giving up the middle. I'm not trying to wiggle out of this, but do you think that, is there any difference in the way somebody might enjoy House of the Dragon versus the way that we're enjoying Andor? I I think it's a great question and a good devil's advocate question. I I think... We just like Andor more because it's about spy shit instead of dragon shit? Well, the question is probably for someone who is Star Wars agnostic, right? Because I think... And, and I, we probably have some people in our lives who might fit the bill. And I'd like to just, you know, we could ask them or maybe we could just ask every guest if they care or if they've watched it. I'd be curious. Because I, to me, what's open-hearted and exciting about Andor is that it's about ambition and politics and fear and birthright and community and all of these things that are more universal than the specific rights of succession of an incestuous dragon-obsessed family. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like that is, you to me, I can't find anything in Rings of Power or House of the Dragon that is universal, that is easily explained to a mass audience without the trappings of what it is. Now, maybe you could say it's about how the real battlefield is the womb, but I think you're wrong about that. 
having watched seven episodes. Whereas Andor, I think, has compelling themes that I'd like to believe could appeal to a larger audience. Now, are the people at Disney looking at it and being like, ah, finally, we're reaching the the middle of the electorate. You know what I mean? Like, we are really running a a 50-state campaign here. Right. And that's what we want. Or are they like, the deeper Mandalorian gets into Skywalker shit, the more hits we get, the more sticky this content is online, and that's better for us. I don't know. And I guess it's a, like with everything we've been saying today, there's two tracks to the conversation. Does making this stuff more insular uh, work from a corporate perspective? And or, not and or, does it work from a creative perspective? And I'm not really sure the answer to that. Maybe this is also just the inevitable way all of this stuff goes, where you draw in everyone to Marvel because Robert Downey Jr. is so compelling and we understand that character. And then, you know, within 10 years, we're like, ah, that's the third iteration of the Hulkbuster armor in a series that is now suddenly a movie that's just about armor. Right. And Don Cheadle. You know, is this the way all of these Don, things Don inevitably go? Colonel William Rhodes, right? This is my favorite. So Chris, Chris over text, I was like, Chris, Armor Wars fully developed as a TV show. Like I know people who were in the writer's room for it, announced as a TV show. And then Feige this week is just like, psych, we're going to make this a movie, which is incredible. It's kind of like an ex-president being like, yeah, I made all that declassified. Like, because I said it was. Um, and I was trying to make the point to Chris that this was interesting from an industry perspective. But Chris, not only getting James Rhodes's name wrong, but Chris is just like, aha, Colonel William Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine. Finally, his story will be told. I thought it was William. It seems like he's a William. Yeah, I, we could debate that. He's a, I mean, any anyone who is a nickname guy, right? He's a, he's Rhodey. Yeah, right. So there are probably people, like, do you think, like Natasha, like, <laughs> rest in heaven, girl. Like, do you think Black Widow knew his real name? Like, they're just work colleagues, right? Do I think that Colonel James Rhodes, <laughs> a.k.a. War Machine, knew Black Widow's way, real name? Other way. Do you think she knew his name? Yeah, totally. They spent a lot of time together. Didn't he also survive the snap? Yeah, they were. They did a lot of like, like, just like long, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, I think, doing, I, like, think after, I think after the snap, everyone got real intimate. There's so many, there's so fewer people. Like you just wind up like getting to know so, like, so people on a much deeper level when half the people go away. Can I p- make a pitch here? Because I know Kevin Feige listens. He just thinks that our interest, like like what we care about, just really aligns with his own uh, mission in his in his work. I, they teased at this a little bit, like in Falcon and Winter Soldier. It's come up a little bit in the margins of some of these TV shows. But like, I'm pretty ready for a full-throated life was better during the blip five years. Because, and I'm going to make a personal example here, like I finally was broken last year and like took the children to Disneyland, which is something that, you know, you resisted. You're lying. You're lying, grownups. If you say that that's what you want to do, I'm sorry. But we took them during the time when there was like still like a hard cap on people coming in and out and they just opened the, the parks. It was great. <laughs> it was great. It was great. And like, I don't know if I want to take my children to a post-pandemic amusement park. So you know you, what I mean? You want a sort of Jerry Maguire version of all this where it's less clients, more money. Yes. Don't you think there's some people who are just like really eating during the blip? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Do you, can you imagine like the short positions that came through on the blip? Like if you were, if you were like shorting, 
Like, I, I just think some yes. guys cleaned up. I wonder if they suspended the market during the blip. Also, suspended do you know trading. how, you know, well, we're the guys to ask. Like, this is a huge financial pod. I hate to say it, but if, if industry season three doesn't go forward, do you think that they could just refashion it as a, what, what happened to the markets during the blip show? Yes. Like the CFO of Stark Industries is like, okay, there's a way we can pivot. Yeah. Like there's a way we can make this work for us. I love that. We should stay in the MCU no, because I, have, I also think this is... Well, I, before we get to that, I do want to address one thing. Because you were talking about like the different... I, I, I'm not going to pull you up on this, but the way you described Andor is the way somebody could ex- describe House of the Dragon. The, give it, me the It's pitch. about birth rate. It's about ambition. It's about blah, blah, blah. Like it's totally about that. It's just that... If there is a version of Andor that sucks, there is a version well, yeah. of Andor where like somebody it's writes, execution. Yeah, You're it's right. all execution. And I'm not even really like bagging on Condola or anything like that. I mean, I'm certainly bagging on the cinematography of this last episode, which I just think <laughs> something happened or, or they, you know, like they tried to pull off a day for night that didn't work or something. But there, everything about this is execution. Like I said before, if anything, House of the Dragon has made me miss Benioff and Weiss. It made me yes. r- miss the consistent repartee that those characters had, the way in which they allowed like Dinklage and Charles Dance and all these people to like just make this character feel as though they are somebody that you would bump into at a brothel in 2021 in London or something like that if there are brothels. And like, you know, just basically going through it where you have like a real like humanity to all these characters, whereas these characters feel a little bit more like museum pieces. No one, no one wants anything. Every character you just mentioned on Game of Thrones wanted something else other than the throne. They yeah. all wanted a second thing. You know, I, I can't get over the, the, I think you brought this up, how Littlefinger, just like Cat Stark also, that didn't make sense. It was an emotionally driven thing that fueled a lot of his decision-making. And I, and I love that. And Corliss, who I keep bagging on for no reason other than, you know, I, he's consistent. And, and I do think that Corliss, Damon, and Otto, like, the maester should be studying them because they age beautifully. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't know. I mean, I know heavy is the head that wears the crown, but like there's something, maybe it's a different diet. You know what I mean? Like it's a, like it's a, a like an Essos kind of like a, like high protein, like sort of, you know, oily fish kind of diet that, that, that King Viserys doesn't have access to, but he looks amazing. But anyway, they don't want anything other than what the show tells us they want, which is to secure lineage and birthright, which you say, right, that's a universal theme, but birthright isn't really universal in my life at the right. moment. You know, it's not really as relevant as uh, uh, any of the themes that Andor is interested in. And I miss that. I think the other thing that's kind but of- But as, as like one miss, of the original hashtag resistance tweeters, you do understand yeah. Cassian's desire to be part of something bigger. Yeah, me, the Krasenstein brothers, and Andor. Yeah, I get that. Um, I, I think the other misstep to mention is one of the great things about Game of Thrones and the experience watching it was the passage of time where a character, like, as we said last week, Jamie Lannister could evolve and develop or a character I was thinking of recently that I loved as the Hound. Just right? think about how they, could the, not, the, the difference between the way the kids on Game of Thrones grow versus the kids on the yes. show. Yes. How I much understand. time we spend with them and we get to see them develop and we get to see them contain multitudes, be good and bad and all of the things that we like in humanity. Um, the nature of the show does not allow that. It simply does not allow that because they're like, bing, 10 years have passed with nothing of note until we resume the show again with different actors. And that just seems like a shame to me. It seems like a shame to me 
primarily because if there was any show that was pre-guaranteed multiple seasons in the last 10 years, it's this one. Right. And they chose one that is just telling us something, I guess, at a certain pace. And I don't, I don't know. Does this, because the show just uses Game of Thrones music and is just essentially, you know, not attempting to reinvent any wheel whatsoever, is this Targaryen fire and blood book, is this, is this just two years of TV and then House of Dragon won't exist anymore and it'll be Sunday night, same music, but a different chapter of history? Is that where we're headed? Because I don't... No, I don't... At, at this I, I rate, we're going to catch up to Daenerys soon. They're telling the story of the Targaryens of War. I was surprised to see new kids in the next episode. I thought we were going to get like a bit of a slowdown. I think that they had... I thought they had been working towards, let's get Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook in here and then we have, this is the show for the yeah. second half of the season. Uh, it does not, I guess that that's not the case, but I'm no expert, so I don't really know, nor do I really want to know whether or mm. not like where the, the end point is, because I'm curious how they pace it out going forward. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. This episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If saving money was on your 2024 resolution list, I have a 100% guaranteed way to make sure you follow through. Ready? Just switch to Mint Mobile. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at UGG.com. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Black Panther trailer? I do, because, you know, it was interesting the way you were talking about, like, in the previous conversation about fully realized worlds and map building and things. And first of all, this trailer is really exciting as someone who likes movies, who likes Black Panther movies, and who likes Marvel movies. I just thought it was really thrilling and beautiful and well put together. And there are, I know we complained about not seeing footage of this movie for a while, but I think they're doling it out really I, well now it, they're like it, in their groove it's really interesting because it's coming out literally in like five weeks uh a little bit less i, I think so it's uncommon for the only thing to have had now they could turn the they could open the faucet in the last couple of weeks and really start putting out we could you know have four trailers by the end but usually there is a lot more they're also a lot more prevalent like i mean i think that one of the reasons why i was like weirdly uh disinterested in seeing Don't Worry Darling is because I saw the trailer like 14 times. It was the only thing playing in front of any movie in the theater for the entire summer. So I was always like, I feel like I've seen this movie over and over again. They have really been 
parceling out the Black Panther stuff very, very... And I, I, to, I can understand why there's so much speculation, like, is Shuri going to become Black Panther? Is, like, what, yes. what is this about? Who are, who's going to be in it? Yeah. I think Ryan Coogler especially, and then Kevin Feige and all of his many lieutenants, like, deserve a lot of credit because this can't have been easy. I think they scrapped an entire movie, right, written for Chadwick Boseman. I think that they, like a lot of great artists, took hardship and circumstance as an opportunity and didn't dwell on what was taken away. Which is, I do not mean that as disrespect to the loss of one of our generational acting talents and charismatic movie stars, Chadwick Boseman. But they've talked about this already. Like there was a version where they just recast or they scrapped the movie or whatever, but they knew they had an incredibly deep bench. And they also, I think, on some level understood that there was an opportunity here to do something that none of these movies have ever done, which is grapple with the finality of death or of just the nature of life, right? Like, as long as Robert Downey Jr. is alive or Chris Evans, they're going to be getting asked about when they're returning to play these characters. The fact that this movie will have to grapple with the loss of someone who meant so much to the world, who meant so much creatively to this enterprise and to the people in it, gives it a weight that I am excited to see, honestly, how they handled and the respectful way that they approached it. And then finally, just like the work that Kugler and his team did to make Wakanda like a living place with a, you know, with a connection to various African cultures and iconography, but then specifically a place and then taking that same opportunity, it seems, with Atlantis and Namor and tying it specifically to Mesoamerican culture and history and art and iconography. It's pretty thrilling. And it's kind of like, it, it, it's a, it, you know, it's not exactly Afrofuturism when I'm talking about Mesoamerica, but just it ties into a larger strain of art and literature and thought. And just watching this trailer, I'm like, more thought has been given to Wakanda's role in the world and potentially Atlantis's as well than was given to New York City, which just keeps getting shit on by aliens or Doctor Strange crashing through roofs. You know what I mean? Like that, the, New York in the MCU doesn't make sense to me, except for the five minutes of Hawkeye when they're seeing a musical based on the Avengers, because that tracked. Do you think that this world has been considered and realized, and we need more of that? It's what we liked in Dune. You know what I mean? Like they they seem to have done the work to ground it in something, and I love that. Do you think that the relationship between this film, for, between Wakanda Forever, and the larger storytelling arc of the phases of MCU stuff, like is this a case where you almost want none of that stuff involved? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, and it was almost a bummer to be like I was almost ref, I was sort of subtweeting it before, but like, at you know, I I saw the link on Hollywood Reporter and watched the link that way, and they were like, see Namor fly and the Ironheart armor debut, right? In I'm like, no, thanks. I mean, I'm excited about that character. That's cool, but that's not what I'm watching it for. Like this, they stumbled into something with that first movie that was of the piece, but so much more than that. And my hope is that it, they they continue to understand that. that. That's really rare, to grow something in such a prescribed terrarium that is just sui generis, that is its own thing, you know? It was, I, I was pretty thrilled by it. Uh, do you want to cover Atlanta before we go today? I, I mean, people love it when I say I'm wrong about stuff. I don't know if I was wrong, because I still feel I have criticisms about other episodes, but I thought this week's episode was a masterpiece. Like, yeah, put it, back-to-back put it in the museum. here, and best like what Atlanta does best, but also what new Atlanta does best where I feel like I know that the first two seasons did this as well. So I'm not trying to be like they reinvented the wheel or anything, but the way that they've calibrated the, uh, 
absurdist comedy with human drama and locked it together so that you have like as I, Isaiah Whitlock is walking through the mall, like it just l- keeps going up levels and levels of silliness and also actually tension. Like the when yes. that kid is like, get, let me get a selfie. It's kind of like, it's kind of intense in a way. And the way in which it kind of, and I know that Charles and Van talked about it on the Prestige TV podcast, but the way in which it all comes together at that dinner at the end, you know, with, and his his character just kind of being like, that was supposed to be my three hours. That was supposed to be my time where I'm like, it's it's for me. And now I'm like back sucked into this family drama and stuff like that. I thought that was great. The whole Aunt Jeannie subplot, you know, or plot line in, in this episode was was fantastic. Her coming into the studio after Ern is getting, or Alfred's being accused of cheating on Uno. Like, it was just a fantastic <laughs> episode. I, I just love it when the characters are, when we, when we can see their connections not just to each other but to larger aspects of society and seeing remembering that Ern has parents who are in haven't been seen since the pilot you know and I say Woodlock like a great 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 actor so happy to see him again and be given something concrete to do that is both funny and with real pathos but that Ern and Alfred are related that and that they generationally fit into a larger tapestry yeah. where they give shit and take shit in, in equal measure, you know, and to see that version of them, Alfred especially, you know, like his face in the restaurant. Yeah, I love, the and I loved Ern's line just basically being like, I don't want to end up like them. It, and, and yet, in the, of them, like, there was so much baked into that family's relationship, you know, that was both immediately kind of universal and funny when Aunt Jeannie's like, if you're hungry, you can have a cough drop from my purse, to like, you know, party line phone calling among yeah. an entire generation to then being like, you're evil. It was, it, it was a truly phenomenal episode of TV. It hit everything in a way that only Atlanta can. And I, I think that I need to work on just expressing gratitude as opposed to being like, I wish we had more of these. It, I, I, it, this show is the only one that makes me feel so, so, yeah, so, I was, so basic. I, had, I, had I feel a, basic. My notes in Atlanta was like, I'm now officially furious that this is ending. Yeah. And I feel super basic for being like, I want more of this thing that it does well, as opposed to the incredibly ambitious things that it doesn't always succeed at, but it seems hell-bent on doing. Like, that's that doesn't jibe with who I want to be as a viewer and critic, but I, I feel very, there's something about this show, you know, that when it is giving you this much, you just feel so lucky to be receiving it. We can wrap it up there. We were produced as always by Kaya McMullen. Greenwald and I will be back on Thursday talking about Andor. We should hopefully have a special guest for that one. Uh, Andy, any any closing notes? I feel like you admitted to me recently that you had a brief evening on Daddington Island when you were looking after some kids and you and you watched some movies. So we won't do it today, but we're, we await with bated breath your review of DC's League of Super Pets, a okay. movie I saw in the theater. I'm still so, I'm still assembling like my thoughts. Yeah, you know, and I have. I feel like I have some Andrew Saris essays I want to revisit before I get to it, but yeah. Did you notice the homage to Gordon Willis's cinematography during the Lex Luthor? <laughs> I thought so, but then I realized the brightness was just down. It was just down. Yeah, no, I get it. Okay, we'll, we'll revisit. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.